podcast. This is Krista Nichols. I am your host. I am beyond excited to be back um, bringing another story to you guys. It's been a while and part of that reason is that COVID has just made recording very difficult and that I don't really have childcare um, or a point to have a peaceful background when I am recording. So that's that's part of it. And I had to make that decision really whether to continue with the show and just realize that it's going to be different and that I might have noise in the background and hopefully y'all will be okay with that um, or just wait this COVID thing out. And unfortunately, right now, that's not really a possibility, especially where I live because we've had just this resurgence um, of the virus going through our cities. I mean, there are refrigerated trucks holding bodies. And I know people in New York, if I have any listeners from there, um, will recognize that because y'all went through the same thing. And now we are. And Houston, I know, has been hit probably harder than we have, but it's all bad. So I had to decide whether to continue in this or just wait it out. And since I really don't see too much of an end in sight with people refusing to wear masks and really just um, not taking this virus seriously, I thought, oh, well, screw it. If there's noise in the background, if there is a toddler running around and talking while I'm trying to (laughs) record, then hopefully y'all will forgive me for that. But that is my reality. And um, I didn't want to stop bringing you these stories because some of them are really important. Like today, today we are discussing the Florida Boys School. It's also known as the Arthur G. Dozier School for Boys. And before we pop into this story, I do want to say that this will cover the brutal abuse of boys ages 5 to 20. And we'll also discuss how some of these boys were murdered in just horrific fashion. So if that is something that maybe you're listening with your kids to this show uh, because of the fun ghosts or (laughs) you're listening for the historical aspect of it, keep in mind that maybe they need to be a little bit older for this one or just maybe it's not one that they should listen to because it's it's pretty bad and it kind of gets there quick. So here we go. The Florida School for Boys was a reform school that opened on January 1st of 1900. And before we get into all that, let's lightly touch on what a reform school was and what it meant to be sent there. Reform schools were created and mostly utilized from the 1830s to the early half of the 20th century. As with asylums, They were created with the best of intentions in mind by social reformers, especially in the United States. The justice system at this point had no rules in place, specifically for juveniles entering the jails. So these kids would go to jails and be treated as adults, housed with adults. As one can imagine, this led to a lot of sexual abuse along with physical violence towards the juvenile inmates. Not only that, in the end, the juvenile inmates, should they survive, were often much worse offenders as adults when they finally did get out of jail. In the U.S., what came from these reforms were two different systems. The first was a juvenile code, which determined what types of sentences their crimes could carry, and the juvenile courts, which determined guilt and meted out sentencing for the newly deemed delinquents. 
And the use of the word criminal at this age was found to be stigmatizing, which really wouldn't assist in the ultimate rehabilitation of the children. Because rehabilitation was the goal, the wayward delinquents would also need to go to their own age-appropriate institution. Thus, we have reform schools come into play. In the United Kingdom, however, the problem was much more visible than in the United States. In London, children who were too young to be employed or who were falling into legal offenses like begging and vagrancy were such a large problem that Parliament set up the Committee for Investigating the Alarming Increase in Juvenile Crime in the Metropolis. They are not known for short names, I guess. Like, <laughs> I love how long that is. This was put into the nation's radar at large due to a book named Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens, which chronicled the tales of a boy in a London street gang. There's way more to that, I know. Those of you who are big Dickens fans will point that out, I'm sure. But... <laughs> I have a lot to get through, so <laughs> we're going to leave that the dissemination of that book for a later date. But in 19, sorry, 1846, it was declared that children under 14 should be tried in a separate court from adults, and sentences could include being sent to industrial schools to learn new employable skills. In the U.S., reformed schools as such continued on with the same fate as asylums stigmatizing those who attended and contributing to a cycle of abuse for the children sent there, usually by older children and staff alike. Despite, I know we're all surprised by this, despite the children being called delinquents and not criminals, it was still a stigma no matter what. So in Florida, the answer was a two-campus, 1,400-acre lot in a rural area of Florida's panhandle named Mariana. The two campuses were named for the South Side, or Number One Campus, and the North Side, or Number Two Campus. As with many of the schools at this time, it was segregated, with the students of color being housed in the South Campus and the white students being housed in the North Campus. A cemetery was established after some time out of necessity, and we'll talk about that in a sec, and that was named the Boot Hill Cemetery, and it was located on the North Side. The school also comprised of a dining hall, buildings for white inmates and inmates of color, a brick plant where the boys learned brick making, a farm, and a school. At some point later on, around 1915, 1918, somewhere around there, there was also a tannery business that was set up and the boys would help with that, which if you've ever seen that process, my goodness gracious, it is a nasty one. So tanning is basically getting um, cow hides and whatever other hide. I mean, it's Florida. Much like Texas, we will make a hide out of anything. And it's just, it's hard to explain without looking it up, but um, Google it. But it takes the, the hide and it makes it to where it's leather. But there's chemicals involved in that and heat and boiling and it's just icky. So... Um, it can't have been great. I would far prefer brick making, I think. I've also never looked up how to make a brick, but I imagine it smells better. So, moving on. At the time the school was opened, it was a state-of-the-art facility named the Florida State Reform School, located in the countryside where boys could be rehabilitated. With no fence around the perimeter of the property, it didn't have the immediate feel of a prison. Boys from the ages of 5 to 20 would be sent here over the next 111 years for offenses as serious as murder and rape. And some were even sent there for incredibly small crimes like trespassing and loitering. 
It was overseen by five commissioners who were appointed to the position by then governor, William Dunnington Bloxham. And they were there to oversee the school and make biennial reports for the Florida State Register, uh, sorry, Florida State Legislature. I don't know why that word legislature, as fun as it is to say, always trips me up. But anyway, I could edit that out. I'm not gonna. All right. It seems that five commissioners weren't enough though, because the first scandal to rock the Florida Boys School happened just three years after it opened. Investigators who were sent into the school by a private party discovered boys chained up like criminals in leg irons. They complained that the boys were being treated not like children, but like regular common criminals. Directly after this, the commissioners were replaced by the governor and the cabinet of Florida, acting as the board of commissioners for state institutions, putting the Florida State Reform School in the same bag as asylums, which would ideally get the school extra supervision. In 1911, an 11-room concrete block detention building, known as the White House, was built to house and punish violent offenders. If this had worked, this episode would stop here and we wouldn't have just a whole doozy of an episode to come, but unfortunately it did not. The school made papers again on November 18th, 1914, due to a fire that broke out while the school's supervisors were off the grounds, and this is their words, pleasure bent, on the town for the entire night. Counts from the newspapers at the time vary, but the Lakeland Evening Telegram stated that eight boys and two employees died in the fire. The general consensus that I can find from the modern reports is that six boys died in the fire and two employees also died. We will come to find later that there are bodies just all over. In fact, I think they're still excavating that area because there were just so many, so we don't really know. Um, the newspapers reported eight at the time, but again, six is the consensus now. An investigation into the fire and what caused it was immediately ordered by Governor Trammell and was put in the hands of the Board of Managers for the school. It's important to note here that the school, when referred to in newspapers from the time, is called both a reform school and an industrial school, following the British trend of teaching the boys marketable skills. The report concluded around May of 1915 that the cause of the fire was likely the oil lamps that lit the school and its grounds at night, along with the absence of employees at the school that should have been at their posts. The investigation also concluded that most of the buildings, though relatively new, weren't up to any living condition, noting that they didn't have electricity, very few fire escapes, and those that they did have were locked, and the unsanitary conditions in which the boys lived were also unacceptable. After any disaster of this kind, management is likely to change, and resignations certainly poured in, along with replacements. The superintendent took the fall for most of the problems, and he was replaced immediately by L.H. Poonam, who had previously worked for 15 years at the Lakeland Boys Detention School. The news of investigations and upgrades to the school slowed during World War I, and good news was heard in June of 1919 when the boys were taken on a camping trip to Blue Springs. They played in the water, ate substantial meals, definitely more substantial than they ever got in the school, and had an overall great time as reported by the paper. But it is something to note that only the white boys were allowed this trip. It even states it in the paper that they were treated to this, the white boys in particular, for good behavior. But the black children and the children of color were never represented, never even mentioned. 
While we're on that subject, former black students that were sent to the school described the situation to be like slavery. John Bonner, now 61, states that on the white side, it was more roomy. You had the industrial shops, the woodworking shop, places the white boy was able to get a certificate. The black side was the slave side. And John was far from the only person who felt that way. Richard Huntley, who was sent to the school at 11 years old and spent two years there, said that while white boys were given vocational work, he and the other black boys were made to work in the field, picking and planting for the state. It was like slavery, he said. In 1934, a boy named Thomas Farnado, who had been accused of trespassing and then sentenced to the school, died 38 days after arriving in circumstances that were not recorded. He, along with the six to eight boys who died from the fire and another 11 who passed away during the flu epidemic of 1918, were buried at Boot Hill Cemetery. In not unmarked graves, some of the graves had crosses on them, but they didn't have names. So if a family wanted to visit, they really couldn't. And oftentimes the families were not notified. Um, that's a whole other thing. We'll get to that. In 1952, burials were no longer recorded at the school. Though to be fair, they really weren't recorded by name for the most part. Just by number, which isn't its own level of awful. Now let's talk about the White House. If you'll remember, this is where the violent boys were sent for punishment and confinement. Punishment at the Florida Boys School was harsh and included solitary confinement, where the bed was literally a concrete slab with no other form of comfort, like a blanket or a pillow. Often, the boys were put in these rooms with little to no clothing and were subject to brutal beatings and whippings with a leather and metal belt-like instrument that was attached to a wooden handle. It would hit the boys' skin so harshly that the fabric from what little clothing they had on would sometimes get embedded into their skin. If they cried out or made any sound during their beatings, there would be severe punishment to follow. Another boy was put into a running dryer for laundry, and it's suspected that the boy died from this. A rape room was also mentioned by several of the boys, where guards and other staff, and sometimes other older boys, would sexually abuse victims as young as nine years old. One of the students mentioned that he was in charge of trash disposal at the White House, and once found a severed hand. When he reported it, he was told to keep quiet about it, or he'd get the same treatment. We know the specifics of these punishments due to a group of men, extremely brave group of men, calling themselves the White House Boys. They're a group of about 400 men who've been talking about the stomach abuse at the school for years. They found each other through the internet and have since sued Florida for their abuses. We'll get to a couple of their stories here in a bit. But 1967 and 1968 were pivotal years for their school. In 1967, the White House was officially closed and used for storage thereafter, and the school was then desegregated. In 1968, Florida Governor Claude Kirk visited the school, where he found that the hallways reeked of urine and feces, and found the punishments to be brutal. In 1968, as a result, corporal punishment was banned. That doesn't mean that it didn't take place, as I'm sure we've all guessed. It just wasn't publicly allowed, and guards could be fired if they were found guilty of their offenses. In 1969, 
the school finally became part of the Florida Department of Children and Families, but the abuse continued. In 1982, a routine inspection found boys were hogtied, this is what I, I quote this, hogtied, and kept in isolation for weeks at a time. The school was in trouble again in 1998 when a boy lost an arm in a washing machine accident where he should have been supervised. He filed a lawsuit and the courts found in favor of the victim. In April of 2007, the superintendent of the school and another employee were fired due to many counts of abuse of inmates. In 2009, the school was again the subject of investigations following numerous abuse, abuse complaints having been made and generally ignored by the superintendent. The investigation took two years and was conducted by the U.S. Department of Justice. It also included 195 other institutions, but at the Florida School for Boys, now named the Arthur G. Dozier School, after his longtime superintendent, they found that 11.3% of the boys had been sexually assaulted in the last 12 months, and only 2.2% of, of them said that it was from other boys. The rest were from staff. Oh, that's just awful. On June 30th, 2011, after efforts to merge the school with another program failed, the Arthur G. Dozier School for Boys closed. The legacy, however, lives on in the abused boys' memories. The White House boys began to find each other by posting their stories on the internet in the hopes to locate other survivors. Some had struggled with their abuse their entire lives, succumbing to suicide or addiction. Their voices were still heard in accounts given by the loved ones that they confided in. In 2009, the St. Petersburg Times published the stories of a few of them in what turned out to be an extensive report, the first installment of which was called and they quote, for their own good. I want to read a couple of the accounts. Willie Haynes was a 13-year-old boy in trouble for stealing a car and driving it around the neighborhood. A judge threatened that if he didn't clean up his act, he'd be sent to the Florida School for Boys. He'd heard that the school had a football team and a Boy Scout troop, so he asked the judge, why can't I go now? Being a poor kid from Tampa wasn't easy, and his mom didn't have the money for him to participate in activities like that. The boys' school seemed like a dream. And when he arrived to the manicured lawns of the boys' school in Mariana, he felt like he was finally able to feel like a normal kid. Within a week, though, a group of boys were bullying him, and being the boy he was, he put up a fight. He had one of them in a headlock on the ground when he was caught by a cottage father, which I guess was a supervisor of sorts for the cottage that he was in. Since he wouldn't fess up to who he'd been bullied by, he was then dragged by the disciplinarian R.W. Hatton to the White House. Marshall Droddy, Eddie Horn, Robert Lundy, Manuel Giddens, and Jerry Cooper recounted the conversations they heard after they were dragged through the door of the White House on different infractions in different years. And by the way, this is gonna get into some language um, and some general triggering accounts, so uh, keep it in mind. I usually do not, I don't think I've ever cursed on this show, but we're about to, because it's just part of the um, things that they heard. So as they entered the White House, they would hear guards say things like, I think we done killed him. Shut your fucking mouth. What do you know about a runner? 
and bite that pillow, lay down, hold the rail, and don't make a sound. Willie Haynes, who just wanted to play and be part of an organization, was dragged into the White House constantly over the course of 18 months and made to lay on a bloody mattress while he was beaten mercilessly. In the showers, he'd watch his blood and pieces of his pajamas run with the water down the drain. Another man, Dick Colon, who now owns an electrical contracting company, was one of the many boys who were stuffed into an industrial dryer. And he was there to tell his story to the St. Petersburg Times, Times as well. The men also spoke of a time walking into the White House where they saw a boy lying in blood, unmoving. These men, along with many others, successfully petitioned the state to recognize the atrocities that were performed at the White House, and on October 21st, 2008, they gathered at the school again to officially be recognized. Willie goes by Bill now, and was the first to address the crowd in front of the White House. He says, I have tried to understand why, as a child in need of supervision, I had to be beaten in such a brutal and sadistic manner. My experience at FSB has mentally scarred me. When it was time to turn around and go back into the White House, Bill collapsed. The article by the St. Petersburg Times is incredibly detailed, and I recommend anyone who is interested in reading more about it to find it online at tampabay.com. It also goes into how many of the boys went on to continue a life of crime and where they're at now. A lot of them were on death row. Uh, many of them continued to rape or murder or do other crimes of that nature. So yeah, there's not much rehabilitation there. In February 2010, the White House boys filed a class action lawsuit for damages against the state government but it was dismissed due to the time limit on the statute of limitations. One of their abusers, Troy Tidwell, was still alive and named in the suit. And I could not find any kind of documentation on if there was a confrontation between him and the boys or what happened to him. Um, but it's interesting that he was still alive. In 2012, a bill was introduced to provide the White House boys and their families with compensation for the abuse, but it also failed to pass. It was brought up again in 2018 and has yet to be passed as of March 2019. On April 26, 2017, the state held a formal ceremony to apologize to about 24 of the survivors of the school and to the families of those who did not survive. Bill Haynes's story and the stories of the other White House boys are examples of how the institution in place at the time, and even to a lesser degree now, took vulnerable boys of color as well as from poor backgrounds and created a system in which they and their descendants were trapped. If I have any listeners, by the way, who think, man, they were bad, they probably deserved it, First of all, these boys were often mentally challenged and not given any sort of care to understand them. And second, many of them were under the age of 18, making them children and as such, unable to make adult decisions that would garner that sort of response. They were children. In no way did they deserve that. Oftentimes they were sent there for truancy or in the case of some for so-called incorrigible activities like smoking. They didn't deserve it. <laughs> it's 
ridiculous. I've read some of the comments online where some people have said that, and just in case I had a listener who thought that, um, no, no, they didn't. There is a bit of light at the end of this tunnel for families who lost boys and never knew what happened to them. In 2012, a project was authorized by the state and led by University of South Florida associate professor and forensic anthropologist, Dr. Erin Kimmerly, to explore the Mariana campus. She led a team of anthropologists, biologists, and archeologists to excavate where possible and to find possible unmarked graves. She says, and a quote, when you look at the state hospital, the state prisons, the other state institutions at that time, there are very meticulous plot maps you can reference. Or if you're a family member today, you can say, where's my great aunt buried? And they can show you exactly where. So why that didn't happen here, I don't know, but it does stand out, end quote. In 2012, they used ground penetrating radar and some light excavation to locate at least 55 burials. But as over a hundred deaths occurred on record at the school, there was likely to be a second cemetery. Glenn Varnado, the nephew of the 13-year-old boy who was killed on property in 1934, requested that if they could identify his uncle's remains, that he be able to bury them at his family's cemetery. Before any identifications could be made, however, Florida announced plans to sell most of the land for redevelopment. Glenn Varnado sued and forced the court to halt the sale until the body of his uncle could be exhumed. On August 6, 2013, Governor Rick Scott and the Florida Cabinet allowed the team from the University of South Florida to excavate and examine the remains of any and all boys buried at the Dozier site. In late March 2019, an additional 27 possible graves were identified, and Dr. Aaron Kimmerly will return to investigate if they're found to contain human remains. In total, there have been seven DNA matches and 14 presumptive identifications from the 51 remains found on the site. Many of the remains exhibited causes of death relating to beatings, starvation, and sexual abuse. And a surprise to no one, they died of abuse. Oh, by the way, Dr. Erin Kimmerly is a fascinating woman. If you get a chance to check her out, she's the founder and executive director of the Institute of Forensic Anthropology. And she has a few books out, but they're not exactly for the hobby reader or easy reading by any means, I don't think. Uh, one is called Sexual Dimorphism in America, Geometric Morphometric Analysis of the Craniofacial Region. I had to practice that, by the way. Um, <laughs> I don't even know what it means. I'm excited to find out. Um, but no, I'm not going to read it. I'm going to be honest with you. It's out of my craniofacial region. No, I don't know what that means. Anyway, um, it's just not a thing I'm going to read. But it is exciting. And her work is exciting. She did in 2015 deliver a TED Talk on forensic science and human rights that I will be finishing watching as soon as I'm finished with this recording because it in itself was very exciting. Her dress is really cute too. Unrelated. But anyway, this story doesn't have much of a happy ending. The survivors are still trying to find closure and the state has recognized their trials and tribulations with formal yet ultimately performative gestures. I hope and pray that the bill will be passed, granting monetary compensation to the survivors and their families. Thank you for listening this week. I'd love to hear your story ideas, and soon I'll be working on a YouTube channel for my episodes. 
This episode was a rough one. It was hard for me to get through um, being a mother and just a person and human in general. It's hard to hear abuse and brutality that is meted out against children. Um, So it was hard to get through and it's not as fun as some of my others, but the story does need to be told because I feel as though there could be, as I just stated, could be more done for the survivors. But if you would like to reach out, please do so on my Instagram. I am at historical paranormal. I am excited to get some new equipment tomorrow, of course, daylight and a dollar short, right? Um, tomorrow, that will make me sound a little bit more professional. So yay. Um, and oh gosh, what else is going on right now? Oh, if you can, if it's possible, please donate to the relief efforts for the explosion in Beirut in Lebanon. It is just, it's unbelievable what they've done. They're dealing with a lot right now. Um, and that includes a lot of political unrest as well as the pandemic still. Um, and of course this huge explosion, which has completely, almost completely shut down their ports. So getting food and whatnot, um, and to help those who have been displaced or homeless or, um, injured, very difficult. So please consider donating to, um, that effort. And I will put in a link on my bio in my Instagram account for you to do so. Again, thank you for listening. And I will be back soon with more stories.